Well, good morning. Welcome. Thank you, Scott and Debbie and Kim, for leading us this morning. It's a joy to be with you again. Um, as you may be aware, I was not planning to be here today, but due to the world that we live in, in light of all the uh, COVID things going on, I got kind of called up last minute and asked if I would come instead, which works out just great. I appreciate it. looks like we got the bulletin uh, straightened out in time. So thanks, Brenda, for getting that done. I appreciate that last minute. Um, well, Happy New Year to you all. Um, as you know, we traveled down to Texas to see my wife's family down there and had a great trip. Thank you for your prayers for us. Um, just a little bit thinking about the schedule moving forward a bit. Just wanted to be in communication with you all. Uh, we're continuing to uh, look for a house down here, trying to put our house on the market in Bozeman and, and looking forward to transitioning, just really waiting for the Lord to provide the right home for us. So I'd appreciate your prayers with us. Uh, next week, Gail Heidi will be back with you again. Uh, thankful for Gail. He's very, always open and excited to come down and preach. And so Gail will be here. Uh, I believe the 24th, my good friend uh, Tanner Ripley from Great Falls will be here with you all. Uh, Tanner pastors there in uh, Great Falls, and I know he's friends and family with this church, so I'm sure uh, you'll be excited to have him and then we'll work it out from there. Uh, one date to maybe remember is March 14th. Pastor Brian Hughes will be down from Bozeman to do an installation service for me. So uh, plan on that day. I'm hoping that some friends drive over from Bozeman to be here with us and maybe um, some of my family around the area. But looking forward to that day. So uh, plan on that with me. Um, well, from there, I'd like to transition to our just continuing in worship now uh, through the corporate reading of God's word. So uh, as is my custom, I'd invite you to stand as we read from God's word. And I'll be reading this morning from John chapter 11, a familiar account uh, that I'm sure you've heard many, many times and love like I do. So please stand and I'll read from John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but, Mar- but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, 
the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she had heard it, she got up quickly and, and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what had been done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them these things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's go to the Father in prayer now. Dear all-powerful God, another year brings us no profit except that the year be passed in your presence, uh, in your service, to your glory, Lord. So, Lord, I ask that you give us grace to proceed and follow us, to guide us, to sustain us, to sanctify us, to aid us in every hour, that we may wait upon you at every moment, depending upon your spirit, to guide our thoughts, to filter our words, Lord, to direct our steps, to prosper the good works that you've ordained for us. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen even the tiniest moat of our faith. God, would you give us holy desires, give us lives that bring praise to you and honor to you, testifying of your love. Help us to labor for the advancement of your kingdom on the earth. Lord, this last year has been difficult, and we are now embarking on more unknown waters, Lord, not knowing what you would have for us in your sovereign goodness in this year ahead. But we're excited and hopeful concerning what you're going to do among us. Lord, we ask that you corporately guide us as we continue as strangers in a foreign land, making our pilgrimage to that celestial city. God, would, would our lamps burn for you? Would our fires burn for you? Would we be enthralled with you every day? God, give us hearts full of love for one another. God, make us a tender-hearted people who quickly seek forgiveness and quickly grant forgiveness. Lord, we think of some of our dearly beloved saints who are not with us here this morning. God, we pray that you'd grant recovery to Jerry. Pray that you would heal his body. Pray that he would use his time alone in his room to you glorify you and to grow in his faith. Strengthen him, we ask. We pray also for Dottie as she's away from her husband and away from us this morning. We pray you'd comfort her. Would you grant her peace in her heart? Lord, we ask that this year you would grow our number through conversions. Lord, would we all be active in our responsibility to proclaim Christ and to make disciples? God, give us opportunities to preach Christ. Lord, give us opportunities to witness to our neighbors. Put fellow sinners in our path and give us boldness and creativity to witness to them. Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace this year to make us holy. 
Uh, Give us your comfort to cheer our sorrows. Lord, I pray that you give us your counsel to instruct us in every matter and your presence to bring us peace. Holy God, in this new year, I pray that we grow in our awe of you, that we would worship you every day. God, may your son's triumph over death be our joy. And Lord, we pray all this together in the matchless name of our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to consider with you the Apostle Thomas, the one who's been known maybe throughout church history as Doubting Thomas. We'll be in John chapter 20. But before we go there, I'd like us just to consider the end of the Apostle Thomas's life, what's not recorded in Scripture, something that comes to us via church history. In the late second century, there was a church history historian by the name of Hippolytus. Hippolytus recorded a few few details about the life and death of the Apostle Thomas. And this Thomas, this former fisherman, engaged in quite the evangelistic ministry. You see, after Pentecost, while Peter and John and others were heading west to cities like Rome, uh, Thomas headed east, east past going all the way actually past Iran, past Afghanistan to India. There's traces of Thomas's work all along the way there. Eventually, he was martyred in India, and church history records that he was pierced through with a spear in all four members of his body, is how he apparently died. Uh, so from Jerusalem to where Thomas died in India was about 4,000 miles. That'd be like us traveling from here to Washington, D.C. and back again. So imagine Thomas making this great trip, preaching, evangelizing, winning converts, baptizing, planning churches the whole way. This was the end of Thomas's life. And we asked, well, what happened to Thomas? What transformed him from who we might call Doubting Thomas to this man who's on a mission, a man on fire, preaching for Christ, telling everyone about Christ? Well, like the rest of the apostles, Thomas was transformed by what he witnessed, namely the resurrection. Thomas witnessed and saw with his own eyes the resurrected Christ. He also sat, of course, under the Lord Jesus' discipleship for three years. He was also endowed with the Holy Spirit, as we all are. But what drove Thomas? Who was this man? Uh, What can we learn about him from Scripture? Uh, Despite his nickname, I think... So what Scripture will teach us is that Thomas had a deep love for Christ, an incredible love for Christ. So with that, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20. And I'll read a passage of Scripture here, 19, verses 19 through 29. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he, had said, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, And Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. We'll spend the bulk of our time today in verses 24 through 29, but I'd like to draw your attention just to some of the context that verse 19 sets up. There it says, So when it was evening on the first day, 
That's the first day of the week. And we ask, well, what, what was this day? What day is this referring to? And it's none other than the, the day that Christ rose from the dead. It's the third day. It was the, it was the very first Lord's day, we might say. And to recap what has happened thus far uh, in this day, very early that morning, Mary Magdalene alerted Peter and John that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And Peter and John run to the tomb only to find it empty. Apparently at this point they're confused and the text reports that they still did not understand the scripture. They didn't understand that he must be, enough he must rise again. That's verse 9 of chapter 20. So then in verse 10, the disciples went away to their own homes. And Mary stays at the tomb weeping. Jesus comes to her and reveals himself to her there. And he instructs her, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 20, saying this, Stop clinging to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary apparently followed Jesus' orders, reporting her encounter with the risen Christ to the eleven. What is not clear in this gospel, in John's account, is clear in the gospel of Luke. The disciples did not believe until they saw Christ with their own eyes. All of the disciples. They would not believe until they saw it with their own eyes. Let me read Luke 24, verses 11 and 12 to you. It says, Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other, were, also the other women were with them, telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. The apostles would have none of it. It appeared to them as nonsense. And it says there, They would not believe them. Even when members of the disciples' closest friend group, we might say, were pleading with them, trying to convince them of these things they would not believe. And really, we think there would have been no one more credible than someone such as Mary Magdalene. But the apostles would not believe. And when evening had come, the disciples were gathered in what may have been the upper room, fearing what might become of them. The, The text says the room was locked. The door was literally locked is what it means. And the text says, Jesus came and stood in their midst. This is verse 19. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The disciples rejoiced when they, with their own eyes, beheld the resurrected Christ. And up until this point, they would not believe. You see, all the disciples needed to see Christ to believe themselves until they saw his wounds and the imprint of those nails and that side wound from that Roman spear, they would not believe. But notice verse 24 of chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them. This is an interesting note. Why was Thomas not there? Well, what do we know about Thomas? Well, this verse says his name, he is called Didymus. Your text might even say the meaning of that means twin. Didymus means twin in Greek. Apparently Thomas was a twin. We know nothing about that. We know nothing about his twin brother. In each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is mentioned only once, only one time, and it's just simply in a list of all the other apostles. But Thomas really comes to life in the Gospel of John. The the Gospel writer here, John, the one who self-titles himself as the one whom Jesus loved, He wants us to know more about Thomas. He's left more for us to know about this Thomas. And we may guess that Thomas was a fisherman as Thomas accompanies Peter uh, after the resurrection when a few of them set out to go fishing in John chapter 21. But beyond that brief reference in John 21 of Thomas going fishing, Thomas is mentioned three other times in the gospel. Chapter 11, chapter 14, and then here in chapter 20. From John 20, it seems that Thomas maybe has earned this title, Doubting Thomas. But I'd like us maybe to reconsider that designation this morning. I think we may have fairly, unfairly labeled Thomas Doubting Thomas. He he may have struggled in some ways, and he may have been gripped with fear, uh, but Thomas is a man of great love for Christ. Thomas would not believe until he saw with his own eyes, but we'll have to remember that all of the other disciples were the exact same way. Maybe we can say that Thomas was a little pessimistic. Uh, Judging by the little revelation that we have involving Thomas, he appears to have somewhat of a grim outlook on life, a gloomy person maybe. Uh, It seems that John also presents Thomas 
as a man with great love for Christ. And I believe that John purposely left behind some details about Thomas so that we would be encouraged when we'd study the life of this disciple. So that would encourage us in our life for us, in our, in our life, in our pursuit of Christ, in our own following of Christ. And that's really what I'd like us to see this morning. It's simply this. Love for Christ propels the life of a believer. Really, love for Christ energizes us. It's really our heartbeat or the lifeblood of a Christian is love for Christ. You can remember 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, a well-known text. It says, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for them on their behalf. The love of Christ controls us because we have believed this Christ has died for us and therefore we die for Him. We give our lives for Him. And we see this compelling, this controlling love in the life of Thomas. Love for Christ drove him. So look with me again at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And this is an interesting note. Okay, why was, not, why was Thomas not with the others? All the other disciples were there. Why was Thomas not there? What happened to him? Uh, so I'd like us to consider all that we can know about Thomas from the Gospel of John. And so to do so, begin with me by turning to John chapter 11, what we read from earlier this morning. This is obviously a familiar account. Lazarus is sick and eventually dies. But we'll pick up this story uh, as Jesus is ministering beyond the Jordan in verse 7. So if you'd, if you'd look with me there, surprisingly, Jesus waits two days after learning of Lazarus' illness. He waits for Lazarus to die, essentially, and then announces to his men, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. You see, Lazarus lived in Bethany of Judea, where Jesus had just been. Bethany was near the heart of Jerusalem and not very far from the temple complex. And from the end of chapter 10, we learn that the Jews were just seeking to kill Jesus there. And so it was for that reason they left. And the disciples responded in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Verse 11, he says to them, he said, after that, he says here, after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. It is here that Thomas finds a voice in the gospel. Look at Thomas's words here. Therefore, Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. I mean, put yourself in the mind of Thomas a minute here. You see, it seems that Thomas is putting everything together in this scenario. Uh, He knows Jesus loved Lazarus. Thomas is aware of that. And now Lazarus is dead. Thomas notes that. Thomas thinks, okay, Jesus is now definitely going to go back to Judea. He's going to go to Bethany. The Jews just tried to kill Jesus in Bethany. He's going, Jesus is going to go to Bethany. And he's saying, I want to be with Jesus. I will be with Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to Bethany. And therefore, I'm going to die with Jesus in Bethany. You see, the logic is quite simple for Thomas. There's no question in his mind about possibly leaving Christ. He's going to stay with them. And therefore, he's going to die with him. And I think these are special words. I mean, John wanted to record these words for us. I mean, every word of Scripture is inspired. And John left these here for us. I mean, I can imagine that Thomas probably said a lot during Jesus' three-year ministry. But only a few of his words, a few of his sentences are recorded. And one of them is this. Let us also go so that we may die with him. And really, this is the end of the discussion. I mean, where's Peter here? Who's the leader of this group? Thomas leads the group and they're all moving. They're all following, following Thomas. The discussion is over. It's like Thomas says, look, guys, if he goes, we go. End of discussion. This unknown disciple leads the group. And why, while it seems that Thomas might have no real hope or trust in the sovereign plan of God here, uh, but we can't really fault him for his passionate love for Christ. He was ready to die with Christ. 
Thomas's love for Christ made him willing to die with Christ. And the thought of being left behind without Christ was unimaginable. It was outside the realm of possibility for him. Thomas' love for Christ made him willing to die for Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, is the same true of us? Are we willing to give up our life for Christ? Are we willing to die for Christ? I mean, this is what Jesus demands of all of his disciples. You'll recall Luke 23 in verse 9 where Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Denying yourself and taking up your cross would have been understood as a call to death, a call to execution. Come and die, Jesus is inviting those who would follow him. And we see this willingness in Thomas. We see that Thomas is willing to sacrifice for Christ. He's willing to risk it all. So now we'll look at another one-sentence character-revealing statement in John of Thomas. Look with me now at chapter 14. Although Thomas may have been pessimistic and may have been somewhat uh, obtuse, we might say, maybe that's a little harsh on him, but I, we can see him exuding love for Christ. Look with, me at a, look with me at a familiar text in chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus tells his men, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And what is evident from this passage is that the disciples were troubled in heart. Well, why? Well, look back at Uh, chapter 13, just back up a few verses to verse 33. Here Jesus tells them, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And look also at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Jesus just dropped a bomb on his men. He just told them, he would soon be leaving them. And rightly, they're, they're dazed. They're undone by these words. And I'm guessing that probably all they understood from Jesus' words here is, I'm leaving and you cannot come. And so Jesus tries to encourage them, starting again in verse 1 of 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you you know the way where I'm going. And it's at this point, we can imagine that Thomas is reeling here, probably feeling like he just got sucker punched. And Thomas is thinking, what? Wait, Jesus, you're leaving us? Uh, And and, and we can't come with you. Uh, What are you talking about, Jesus? What all the other disciples were probably thinking and feeling, Thomas is speaking. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We do not know the way. How do we know the way? Thomas breaks into Jesus' teaching here. He interrupts Jesus. Uh, He's probably distraught and bewildered, head spinning. And Thomas essentially says, Lord, we really don't get it. We don't know where you're going. We don't even know the way. It's as, as if Thomas's world is caving in. He's desperate to determine how he can remain with Christ. Jesus, if, if you leave my life, I don't know what I'm going to do. After all, the disciples had left everything to follow Christ, all of them. They had no hope without Christ. And this is what, think about the love of Christ. The love of Christ produces hope for the future. Really, the love of Christ produces peace about the future. Because we have Christ, we have peace in this life. Is it not for this reason that so many fear death, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what is next? Can you imagine being unaware of what comes in the next life? Be like driving in a blizzard, being utterly unaware of what comes next in life. You see, when we come to love Christ and trust in Christ, our whole future is bound up in him. The mere idea of Christ being ripped away from a believer is petrifying. Thankfully, it's impossible. John 10 tells us that no child of God can be snatched out of the Father's hand. And we rejoice at that, right? But imagine Thomas here, reeling with these words, considering life, his beloved teacher, the one who he spent the last three years with, now being ripped away from him. 
was hopeless for Thomas to consider life without Christ, as it would be for us with life without Christ. Can you imagine what life would be like without Christ? What would you do? Where would we be? How would we spend our lives? See, when you love Christ, you find hope, you find purpose for the future. It's, it's this reason that true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ could never defect from following him. They could never defect from Christ. We see this in the end of John chapter 6 when all of the disciples are leaving. They're fleeing Christ. It's a mass defection of disciples leaving Christ at the end of John 6. And Christ asks his own men. He turns to them and says, do you want to go away also? Do you want to leave also like all the other disciples? And Peter gets this right. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter got it. He knew this is it. This is our life. Our life is wrapped up in knowing Christ and following you. A true born-again disciple of Christ could never defect from Christ, never reject the faith in any permanent sense. You see, in the innermost being of a believer, God has worked faith in them. He's opened their eyes to see the truth, and they now love Christ. And now this brings us back to John 20, back to that question we asked from verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, not being there, was not with them. And Jesus appeared to the other disciples, Thomas being absent. Well, why was he not there? Surely he had been informed about Mary's encounter with the resurrected Jesus like all the other disciples. We can only guess here, but it seems reasonable to conclude based upon what John has left us and based upon the type of man that Thomas was, he was probably utterly devastated. I mean, Thomas had just witnessed the brutal execution of Christ. And the thought maybe of a social gathering here was maybe too much for him. And the thought of someone else seeing Christ, but not him, I don't think Thomas wanted to come. We see this unrelenting desire to be with Christ. So look at the second half of verse 25, or the first half of verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Here now all the other disciples join in. They're trying to convince Thomas. The the tense of the verb indicates that there was multiple attempts to try and convince Thomas. They tried to explain to him, we have seen him, but Thomas would have none of it. Look at the second half of that verse, verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of his nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, stop trying. I'm not going to believe unless I see him. We might say that this statement is rather rash and revealing a hardened obstinacy in Thomas, but maybe this is why Thomas has earned that name, Doubting Thomas. But all the other disciples are trying to encourage him. He essentially tells them off, and Thomas is exasperated by their efforts. He's he's saying, look, I will not believe. And before we criticize Thomas too harshly, remember he's in the exact same place as all the other disciples. Before they saw Christ, they didn't believe either. And I, and I think on some level we may be able to detect an element of belief in Thomas, I mean, Thomas here. I mean, imagine, these are his closest friends, his closest com- companions, all trying to convince him that we saw Christ, that they had saw the risen Christ in their midst. I think Thomas would have likely believed them to some extent, but was not willing to fully confess his belief in it. And he wanted to see him. He insisted upon seeing him. Thomas shows up eight days later. He's with the group now. Maybe Thomas was hoping that Christ would appear again to the disciples. He had to touch him. He had to see him. He had this unrelenting desire to be with Christ again and again. May this be true of us. May we be like Thomas in that room. No, I want to be with him. I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 73 where it says, Lord, whom do I have in heaven but you? He thinks in heaven... I have you alone, and I want to be with you. And he says, and on the earth, I desire none but you. That was David's heart, or actually Asaph's heart after the Lord. That seems to be the heart of Thomas here. Would that be our heart? Would we long to be with the Lord? Would that make us say, Lord, come quickly? We want to be with you? Let's look at the final verses of this account in verse 26 of John chapter 20. After eight days, that is the next Sunday, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was, this, was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut or literally locked, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. I mean, this would have been quite, 
quite startling for Jesus to appear like this, and Jesus needs to calm them down. And then Jesus focuses in on Thomas. And in essence, he repeats Thomas's words back to him from the week before. Look what he says in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Uh, by repeating Thomas's words back to himself, I think that Jesus is impressing his deity upon Thomas. The fact that Jesus came through the walls and appeared in their midst, it really testifies of Jesus's deity. The fact that Jesus knew what Thomas said the week before when Jesus wasn't there in person testifies of Jesus' deity. But the very fact that Jesus was taken down lifeless from a cross not too long ago and now is resurrected in their midst, I think that screams of Jesus' deity. And what's Thomas' response? Verse 28, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You see, those who love Christ embrace him for all that he is. Love for Christ requires a high view of Christ. You cannot love Christ without believing that Jesus is God. Jesus himself told the unbelieving Pharisees this in John chapter 8. He said to them in verse 24, For unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am, if I am he, unless you believe that I am Yahweh, in other words, you will die in your sins. The bare essential belief of a Christian is that you believe that Christ is God and that he died for us. You see, here in this place, Thomas's faith has now been full, has been made full. Yes, he loved Christ before and yes, he believed in him to a point. But this is like Thomas's great aha moment. He gets it. And Thomas cries out in amazement, my God, my Lord and my God, Lord, meaning master, my king, I'm the, I submit to you. I am your servant. You're my king. You're my master. Thomas calls him God, Theos. This is an unmistakably clear reference to the deity of Jesus. To any Christian or quote-unquote Christian who might claim or reject the deity of Christ, they should read this verse. Tell them to meet Thomas. Thomas tells Jesus to his face that he's God. Thomas knew that Jesus was God because he is God. You see, Thomas would not believe until he saw with his own eyes. And now he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And he is God. Thomas's love for Christ kind of culminates here in the Gospel of John with this sort of Christological epiphany of sorts. And so to love Christ is to take him both as our Lord and as our God. And you know this. But I must ask, have you come to this? Have you come to embrace Christ as God? When you, look of, when you look to Christ and think of him, do you think of him as your God? And do you worship him as your Lord, the one you submit to? Does he own you? Does he run your life? Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. I don't think this is a rebuke to Thomas. Remember that our Messiah is gentle, he's lowly, he's meek, and he's especially so with those who are struggling. I recall Isaiah 24.3, a bruised, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. I believe here Jesus is just gently, compassionately working with Thomas. Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Now, I think this is better taken as a statement rather than a question. Uh, Jesus blesses those who believe the written account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and those who have not seen it, who have not seen the resurrection like Thomas was so blessed to have. I mean, that's a, that's a blessing upon us. That's for you, and, for you and I. We are blessed because we believe the written word of God. I mean, the truth of this text is that we don't need a vision. We don't need to see Christ in our midst. We don't need a miracle to convince us that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Messiah because we believe the word of God. And we believe the word of God because the Holy Spirit has given us eyes of faith to believe it and trust it. God has opened our heart to see these things. So we believe that Jesus is our Lord and our God. The Apostle Peter wrote about those who, unlike Thomas and the other, other apostles, uh, believe without seeing. This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's us. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So here what we've seen is really just a sort of an abstract of the life of Thomas. Uh, This is all that the Holy Spirit would want us to know about Thomas. And I believe he had a great love for Christ. And this love for Christ challenges us to be willing to die for Christ. Recall Luke 9.23, If anyone desires to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Thomas's love also challenges us to find our hope in Christ, find all of our life wrapped up in Christ and who he is. We recall Psalm 73 again, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. May we love Christ like that. Thomas's love also challenges us to desire Christ's presence more, that we'd long for him to come back. It's so easy for us to forget that we're waiting, awaiting the second coming of our King. May we long for Him. May we be ones who say, Lord, please come quickly. And also, Thomas' faith also challenges us to believe Christ for all who He is, to accept Him as both Lord and God. And so if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in that Christ, if you haven't believed in Him as your Lord and your Savior and your God, may I just invite you to do that? You must believe in this Christ. You must trust him. There is no hope outside of Christ. You must place your faith in this Christ. And for those of us who are committed to him and following him, may we grow in our love for Christ this year. May that maybe characterize this year for us. Will we just grow in loving and knowing Christ? Would we go to seek him in his word where he may be found, where he's been revealed to us? Would we live for him? Would we obey him? After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We obediently follow him because we love him. Out of the overflow of our hearts, we love him, therefore we follow him. It's not to earn our salvation. Do we follow him? Do we obey him? But because we love him, now we obey him. May that be true of us this year. May we grow in a deep, rich love for Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for just the breadcrumbs that you've left for us of this man, Thomas. Um, Lord, I, th- I thank you for a man who is slow to believe, because that's so true of so many of us. Lord, we're, we're slow. Speak of myself, I'm slow to believe, so often to doubt your word and your promises. But Lord, you, you brought this man, Thomas, to full faith, and he confesses ritually that you are both his Lord and God. And that's what we acknowledge here today that you are our Lord and our our God, that you are the Christ, you are the Lord, you are our King, and you are our God. Lord, I just pray for us this year that we would grow in our love for Christ, and that love for Christ be manifested in our love for one another and our love for the lost. Would we be eager to tell our friends and our family, our neighbors, our co-workers about this Christ? Give us opportunities, Lord, to proclaim this Christ. May our lives bring glory and honor to you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to continue worshiping by observing the Lord's Supper or communion together. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this means if you've trusted in Christ as for your salvation, if you recognize that you're a sinner, that you deserve hell, but you've trusted in this Christ as the only means of salvation, then we'd invite you to partake with us this morning. Um, We've been reflecting on this Thomas and the faith of Thomas and and really this sort of declaration that Thomas makes, my Lord and my God, in a way Thomas confesses his faith. And really through communion or the Lord's Supper, uh, we similarly declare our faith. Several things occur when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, we remember Christ's atoning death on our behalf, of course. We, were, we proclaim that death to one another, and we also share in the blood of Christ. Uh, let me just read to you a verse from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? You see, by drinking the cup and eating the bread, we are sharing in the the spilt blood and the broken body of Christ. And as you know, some in church history have understood this quite literally. 
that they believed that through communion, that they were consuming Christ, literally consuming his, his body and blood. Obviously, we don't believe that. We understand the te- this text to be a metaphor to communicate of a spiritual union that, in essence, we share in the spiritual benefits of Christ's broken body and spilt blood for us. But there's a sharing that occurs here. It's a part of a, a sharing with Christ. We're communing with Christ through this. But also in communion, we commune with one another. In the context of this verse in 1 Corinthians, the context is of sharing communally together. The Lord's Supper is a communal event. It's sort of a family meal that we enjoy together. And it's why this reason we don't practice it ourselves. This is a church activity. So let us now share together in Christ's broken body for us and his blood spilt for us and just recalling our union with Christ, our faith that unites us with Christ and his death. So men, if you would please come forward, um, I will lead us in prayer as you come forward and I'll begin here. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, uh, this the ordinance that you've left behind for us to remember you together as a church family. Lord, we thank you for Christ's broken body on our behalf. And as we now begin to partake of this piece of bread, may our minds together remember Christ's death and the benefits of that death for each of us. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Go ahead, man. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake of the bread together. Lord, we thank you now as we come to remember your spilt blood on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Lord, we remember that Christ is the Lamb of God who 
who takes away the sin of the world. And we thank you for, the, for Christ's blood that washes away our sin. And we remember this now as we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Text continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you recall, this is what we do. We proclaim the Lord's death through communion, through the Lord's Supper together. I'd invite Scott and the others to come on up and close us in our final hymn. 